0: Hi, this is Dr. Jane Battenberg, author of Change Within, Change the World. In this weekly podcast, I interview changemakers who are at the cutting edge of new thought and consciousness awareness. Join me as we change within and change the world together. Today's guest is Delia Chilgren to talk about fragments in time, archaeology, and shamanism. Delia, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, Jane. Great to be here.
0: Delia, you were a successful corporate lawyer and lobbyist until you finally retired, and you've had many hats and many adventures. Can you talk a little bit about other things that you've done?
1: Well, of course, you mentioned archaeology and shamanism in the title of your podcast, but one little-known fact about me is I was a world champion powerlifter.
0: How did you do that? Why did you do that?
1: Well, I had a, was in an automobile accident, and my middle back was impacted. I was trying to get well, and I tried all kinds of physical therapy and various medical treatments. And finally, my doctor, who was also a sports physician, gave me a prescription to go to a gym. And it turned out it was a powerlifting gym. And so he's the powerlifting instructor said that I had opportunities because I had very short arms, and that's very good for bench pressing. And I had very short legs, and that's good for deadlifting. And I was working out with these 19-year-old guys and a lot of heavy metal music, and ultimately I became a competitive power lifter, ultimately becoming the strongest woman in the world in 2007.
0: Wow, that is great. Archaeology now is a, a passion and a hobby,
1: Yes, I'm not a professional archaeologist. I I have had some training, obviously, um, but I'm basically a a complete amateur. But I work with an archaeological center in the uh, southwestern Colorado, and I've had training with them in both field work and lab work.
0: And how did you get into archaeology?
1: Well my boss at the time was very involved in archaeology and was very involved with this particular center for archaeology and he insisted that I join him at a meeting there. And When your boss asks you to go for a meeting at something like that, you typically do. (laughs) And he was actually making a very educated guess because he knew me very well and he thought that I would fall in love with it, and I did.
0: Mm. So you have certain talents that um, make you very valuable to people like this.
1: Well, I'm very good at seeing patterns, Mm. and I think that's actually something that comes out of legal training, because when you're looking at a fact situation, you're looking at what are the patterns here, what is the behaviors, what are the factual patterns that unfold on a timeline, and so that was actually part of my background, and so when I looked at a terrain, I could see that there were man-made structures, because nature is not perfect circles, nature is not perfect pyramids, nature is not perfect rectangles, nature is all over the place. So when you see these sort of geometrical things, it usually indicates to you that there has been human activity and human building. Mm. And I so, was able to see that.
0: That's great. So I, I'm intrigued by you're putting archaeology and shamanism together. I suspect there is a story there.
1: Oh boy, is there? <laughs> I was involved in archaeology from 1992 to 2004 before the shamanic experience kicked in. And what happened was I was unexpectedly invited to join a group that was going to explore Chauvet Cave with Jean Claude, the noted French archaeologist. And he had asked our group to come because he had a theory. And his theory was that people were not the Flintstones going into these caves. They weren't just painting them because they felt like it or because it was about hunting. His theory was that these were really the churches, the synagogues, the mosques, the temples of their time for Paleolithic man. And so his, he wanted to get a Native American shaman to go with him into Chauvet, and that was part of our group that I got to join at the last minute. And this
0: was in France? This mm-hmm. was
1: in southwestern France in Chauvet Cave. And so this was a Native American shaman, and he was very interested in finding out what her interpretations of this were. She would look at the paintings, and she would tell him, this was about, this. This was about a shamanic practice. This was about um, a, a person in transformation. This was about people who died, and their spirits were ancestors. This is about all of those. She was interpreting from her own personal experience as a shaman what it would have meant in her culture. But it was sort of generic that it would apply to many different civilizations. And it was there that I had a spontaneous shamanic initiation experience.
0: Can you talk about that?
1: (laughs) Well, um, it's kind of unusual because there's three ways that you can become a shaman. Number one is that you're the son or daughter of a shaman, and that's what you grow up with as your family heritage. The second way is that you may live in the village and maybe the shaman picks you out because their own children don't want to do it or they're not interested or they don't have the talent or whatever. And they pick another person in the village and they, they train them you know, with the herbs, with the rituals and so forth. The third one is where you're just you have an experience that is shocking, that shocks your system. And at that point, you're wondering what is going on And at that point, you know, all of these strange things are happening to you physically and mentally. And you wonder, am I going crazy?
0: And were you going crazy? Well,
1: I thought I was having a nervous (laughs) breakdown because I would have these feelings of putting my hands through the walls of the cave. It would be extremely cold and I would be sweating profusely. All of these strange physical things were happening to me, both mentally and physically and I was having symptoms of things that were not physically possible for me to have symptoms of, and I was feeling like I was having a nervous breakdown. So I actually consulted the shaman one evening, and I said, I'm having a lot of issues, physically and mentally, and I'm, it's not something a doctor could address.
0: So it, long past your having your period, you got your period, there, yes. for example.
1: And again, the sweating and the chills and yeah. all these other things and feeling disoriented and feeling like I was going through walls. And so she said to me, well, I'm going to go ask my spirit guides tonight, and I'll let you know tomorrow morning. Meet me for coffee, you know, a little bit before we get together with the others. So she came down the next morning, and we sat down for coffee, and she says, well, I talked to my guides. And here's the answer. You've come home after 34,000 years. (laughs) 34,000? 34,000 years, (laughs) yes, because that's when this cave is believed to have been used as a shamanic center for the Paleolithic mankind. And she said, there's one thing about this, she says, you're actually like an unguided missile at the moment because this has happened to you, but you don't have any training, any skill sets that you've developed to be able to do this. And so she offered to train me when we got back to the US and she did. And that's how I kind of have the connection between archaeology and shamanism, because archaeology was actually the gateway drug for me into shamanism.
0: And now you uh, you provide shamanic journeys for people. Yes, I do. And can they reach you? How could they reach you if they want to do this with you? Are you can you do it long distance?
1: I can do some things long distance, okay. not all. Some of the more intense um, processes involve physical interaction that need to be done. In situ, if you will. Other things such as looking at past lives, looking at energetic patterns, doing other kinds of processes can be done on Skype or over the phone with preparation and, you know, trance and so forth. But there's a number, it's, it's a mixed bag.
0: Okay, so they can reach you?
1: SpiritPath at Comcast.net.
0: Is there a phone number there that? that yes, area code
1: 928 639 8455. Thank you.
0: So, in your many archaeological digs that you've been on, have you had any major finds?
1: Well, um, being involved with um, Chauvet Cave, which had been discovered previously, but this was a new exploration, was certainly huge. But we've worked on many things, including uh, helping a French uh, archaeological group with their underwater archaeology with Cleopatra's last palace in Alexandria. But the one that stands out the most to me was a long-term project that I was involved in in Morocco with a professor from the University of Tennessee on the American side, and he went over there with money that had been donated to the University of Tennessee, and I'm one of the donors to that process, and helped to train Moroccan archaeologists so that they could become part of it. So the connection between um, not only coming and doing archaeology, but educating the scholars from that very country, to take over the reins and to move forward with it.
0: What did, what did you discover?
1: Well, we discovered the largest archaeological site in all of the country of Morocco. It's called Agmat.
0: How do you spell that?
1: Well, I don't know the Arabic, but it's the closest thing in English is A-G-H-M-A-T. And it's about an hour's drive from Marrakesh to give you a positioning of it. And actually, Marrakesh took over when Agmat was abandoned. So
0: what did you first discover there? I mean, you, you saw a mound? or what? Did we you... saw
1: a perfectly shaped hill, a perfect circle, of ma- uh, like a dome. And that was our first clue because, as I said before, when you see something that's a perfect structure, it's not from nature. It's from human beings creating it. We got permission from the farmer and we dug through. And what it turned out was that this was the dome or roof of a hammam.
0: And a hammam is?
1: The hammam is the um, Arabic version of the Roman bath, where you have various chambers at various temperatures. This place had pipes, which would have had hot and cold running water. You have the caldarium, the frigidarium, the tepidarium. You had little alcoves where massages were done, where um, exfoliation was done. And then you had a courtyard, you had dressing rooms. It was like it showed that there was a big city here. Because a public bath like that would require a population to support it. And so then we knew we were onto something and, and also that this would be close to a mosque because people would go and do their baths and, you know, preparation before the Sabbath.
0: And did you find, uh, you found archaeological artifacts there? We found
1: many, many things. And, you know, if you go to a gym today, you might leave your comb behind, or you might leave an earring, or you might leave some article of clothing when you're getting dressed to leave. Well, this would be kind of like that. So people would go, and they'd be doing the baths, and, and they would sometimes leave stuff behind. So we found beautiful handmade combs. We found, you know, jewelry you know, that people just sort of incidentally left behind. And as well as the structure itself. But no
0: dirty towels. No dirty (laughs) towels, no. So what did you do with these artifacts? Did did you just leave them in situ, as you said?
1: Well, actually, we didn't have a place to put them at the time because many of the... And this was back in 2005, 2006. Many of the... Most of all of the museums in Morocco at that time were loaded up already with the artifacts that had been found in other sites, and there was really no room to store them. Mm. So we ended up... um, using one of Paloma Picasso's garages. Her husband was a um, Moroccan businessman, very wealthy, and they had a villa outside of Marrakesh in a gated community. So we knew that we would have security and they had multiple garages. So one of the garages was put to, we put all these shelves in and we put the artifacts there for safekeeping until there was space for them in a museum.
0: Paloma Picasso? Yes, she's related to the The daughter father. of.
1: Oh, the daughter of, and I have to tell you having been to the villa, there were many, many wonderful paintings from her father's generation that were mm. there.
0: So then the artifacts s- stayed there for a while and eventually
1: they're stored now in the Bahia Museum in Marrakech.
0: And and this site is the most famous What's well, not in the all most
1: famous s- yet? But it is the largest, and it soon will be very famous, because um, it is the largest archaeological site in Morocco. Um, Not only did we find the Hammam, which started the process, we also found a a beautiful mosque. We found an enormous palace, which had pools and running water. That's still in the process of being excavated as we speak. So what we have is an entire city. And because it's so close Mm -hmm. to Marrakesh, Um, there is a movement afoot to put a museum there and bring the artifacts that are in the Bahia Museum and bring them back to, there would be a museum there, there would be guided tours, people could actually go and look at the archaeologists working as they worked.
0: So have you been to any dicey places?
1: (laughs) Well, a few. Sadly, uh, we saw the beginnings of the civil war in Syria in 2011. We were working in Palmyra, which was an a Roman Byzantine area and uh, very close to where this new group called Islamic State was coming into being. So we had to get our butts out of Syria pretty quickly. It took a little bit of energy to do that. Any other? Well, we've been in uh, Guatemala where we were near drug cartels and all kinds of things like that. So you you learn to be very cautious and be very wary when you're traveling in areas where there could be potential violence and, and political insecurity.
0: And I I think you rely on your your senses to uh, know when to get out. Yes,
1: definitely. You You
0: recently went to France.
1: Yes, and we were trying to look at Montseigne, which is a a fortress that was the last refuge of the Cathars, a group that was considered heretical by the Catholic Church. And the King of France and the Papal States at the time Um, ultimately destroyed these people, massacring men, women, and children at this particular fortress. And we were going to go and explore um, some of the tunnels that led up to the fortress from the village and look around. And every time we attempted to go up that mountain, we had thunder and lightning. And finally, I turned to the group and I said, this is don't look energy. We're not supposed to go there right now.
0: And so you turned around and...
1: That's correct. We That's, didn't go there.
0: Okay. <laughs> well,
1: good instincts. Well, and they trusted my intuition on that.
0: So, archaeology is, is, is all about layers of history. You want to talk about layers? That-
1: yes, because there's one layer on top of another, and sometimes in order to get to the lower layers, you have to destroy the upper ones. For example, at Aghmat, the initial palace was built probably in the 9th, 10th century, but there were additions done in the 12th century. Hmm. But to get to the ones that are below, you have to pot- have to potentially destroy the ones that are above. So you make decisions, and you realize that every time you look at a layer, you're looking at potential layers underneath that layer, until you get to base the basically the dirt layer. And that's true of a lot of archaeology. You're going layer by layer by layer because people tend to be around where there's a body of water, for example. People tend to find those places because that's where they can grow crops, that's where they can have water for their animals and for themselves. So you have many, many civilizations on top of each other.
0: So the silt comes in or the dirt or the winds take and... Yeah. They just fill in and...
1: Yeah, and places get abandoned because the water source disappears which happens, for example, with the Mayans.
0: So does that relate to to life? I mean, I'm thinking of layers of history, like our ancestral things, and it seems like a metaphor for life, for layers of history.
1: Well, layers of history, and my theory is we live in our dirt. (laughs) We live in our dirt, the dirt that is beneath us that we are aware of and the layers of dirt underneath so if you say you live in a city or you live in a rural area or you're in you know, a suburban area, somebody lived there before you, whether that was connected to your DNA or not. There were people that we were coming through. There were people that were living there. If you're near a river or a stream, you can bet that there were people living there. So we're all living on top of everybody else's history that came before us. And so we're all connected through the land to the deepest, deepest part of the land. The other thing that is that people are connected through time and space. And that is because we imagine ourselves as 21st century human beings. We're these great people that fly around the world, we take a cruise, we go all over the place, you know, and we look at people that came before us as having been, you know, sedentary, being in one place. And that's so completely untrue. We have been world travelers since the beginning of time. One of the things that I learned from working in Morocco was that. Agmat was actually a key place on a caravan route. That's why it was so wealthy. That's why it could have this beautiful palace. That's why it could have this elaborate mosque and this beautiful hammam. Because there was gold coming up from the sub-Saharan Africa, going up through Morocco and into Europe in the medieval period. So medieval Africa, you have caravans going up north and down South with trade, with money exchanging. I mean, one of the things you find interesting in these places is that you find coins from all over the place. It's not just coins from that area. People are doing trade, and they had these things called caravansaries, and they were usually about a day and a half from each other, and they would be starting in sub-Saharan Africa, and they would be moving up, and they would usually be about a uh, day and a half from water, because they would follow the streams over the mountains and through the, Rivers and so on, and they would need to be a secure place because if you're carrying gold, you're basically the bad guys are looking for you. They want to steal the gold and take it for themselves. So they built the equivalent of what we would in the you know if you talked about the American West, if you talk about the forts that were built as you know the Americans moved westward, you know they it's sort of like that. You have a square or similarly type building. You have towers, you have guard towers, you have a guarded gate, you have high walls. And in these caravanseries, the first floor would be the animals. They had packed mules and all this sort of thing. The second floor would be where they sold their wares. So the caravansary would be in town. And if you were looking for cloth, if you were looking for gold, if you were looking for jewelry, if you were looking for pottery from someplace else, you would go to that marketplace and you would get it. And then the third floor would be where the merchants who were traveling with the caravansary would be living. That would be their living quarters. So you find these caravansaries all the way through, and people were traveling like nobody's business. So there's this interconnectedness with people through time that we we don't assume that that happened, but it did. You know, you talk about the Silk Road from China all the way to the Middle East and into Africa and so forth, and up into Europe. These were thriving areas. I mean there was a lot of commerce going on and people were moving about goods and services and human beings.
0: So in a sense I'm, I'm getting the sense that we're all amateur archaeologists whether it's digging in the dirt or digging up our ancestors or you have a, an opinion about that right?
1: <laughs> well I have an opinion that you know instead of using the term archaeology mm. I would actually say that most people do Art, small a archaeology on their own. Because if you take the attitude, if it's not what you find, it's what you find out is the critical thing. You know, you can pick something up and say, oh, okay. Or you can say, what is this all about? What does this tell me about people? What does it tell me about connection? What does it tell me about place? What does it tell me about time? And the other thing is, dig deeper. When you think you've found the answer, dig deeper.
0: Oh, that's good. That's that's really good. And that's
1: the real thing about archaeology. It's You always have to dig deeper. But in the archaeology of the heart, in the archaeology of the soul, in the archaeology of humankind, digging deeper is the answer to almost everything.
0: Very wise. So is, is there anything else you would say about um, archaeology? You've got um, dig deeper. What are your three things?
1: It's not what you find. It's what you find out. And the third thing is, and I think this is the thing about the connection of time and place, touch the past and you can change the future.
0: Oh, say more about that.
1: Well, we don't have a sense of history. And sadly, most people don't really think about it a lot. But the real thing is when you look at the past, there are patterns of human behaviors. There are patterns of how we talk to each other, how we interact with each other, how cultures relate to each other. And when you touch the past, you can move forward into the future. I mean, one of the most beautiful things about my recent visit to Morocco was that these archaeologists who had been trained when I initially went on these digs there are now leading the effort in their own country in terms of lead archaeologists. They're not waiting for someone to come from outside. They are now feeling so imbued with their love of their own land and their love of their own history. And to me, that's one of the most beautiful things because as they touch the past, they can move forward and touch the future.
0: Mm. So can you name those three again just so we, we can review that? I think, isn't that, isn't that a motto for your archaeologists? Yes, the,
1: the group that I'm affiliated with, these are three mottos we've used at different points in time, and I've always taken them as really powerful truths. The first one is, it's not what you find, it's what you find out. The second one is, Dig deeper. And the third is, touch the past and you change the future.
0: Very good. So is there anything else you would like to say about the metaphor of archaeology?
1: I just think that, you know, people think of it as the the science, and it is a lot of science. I mean, there's so much now, especially with the technology, that is very scientific, and it's always been scientific in terms of analysis. But I think the more powerful lesson of it is the interconnectivity of people and place and time. Mm. The other thing I would add is that in almost every culture where you do archaeology, you you find powerful spiritual traditions, many of which include what we would call shamanism. Mm -hmm. So when you go to the Mayans, they had an incredible cosmology. Yes. And you go to any, especially the earlier cultures, you find powerful symbols, you find the evolution of the Egyptian mythology. You find the Sumerian. Those are the ones I'm familiar with. But every time you go, you you find that people have to configure their world in a way that they can understand it from a spiritual perspective. I mean, the whole Cenotes thing in the Yucatan is all about going into the underworld. So you have these same metaphors. The, The underworld of the Cenotes in Yucatan is the same as the underworld of the cave in Chauvet, France.
0: Oh, okay. It's
1: the place where people go to touch the spiritual and to be inspired and directed by the spiritual.
0: And did you have a, a similar experience in, in a cenote? And...
1: No, not really, but I got how it felt because as you go down, you're climbing down rocks and there's this huge pool of water and people, and you can see up. Above you, that there would be uh, the hole where people would actually make offerings. So they would offer pots, they would offer gold, they would offer you know for rain, for whatever they needed from the gods. So there was a whole thing about this is asking the gods who are in the underworld to give us their favor.
0: So I always think of underworld as as like the devil or something like that. But they was it more like Mother Earth or, or? well,
1: there's three worlds in shamanism. There's the the underworld, which is the world of the spirits. Um, the ancestors and so on, the ancestral spirits, the animals that help you, which is why many of the religious and spiritual depictions in many cultures have animal-type features. Horus, you have different animals that come... The bull. The bull, yeah, all of these things as personifications or manifestations of that part of the deal. You have the Middle Earth, which is where we're living on the plane here and then you have the upper world which is where you have the spirit guides you have all of the those sort of the heavenly bodies that we would call them angels or guides
0: great very interesting so any last-minute things that you would like to tell people about uh, archaeology or shamanism or both dig deeper <laughs> okay once again if people want to reach you they can reach you by
1: email at spiritpath at or at nine two eight six three nine eight four five five. Leave a message if I don't answer.
0: Okay. Thank you very much for joining us, Delia. It was fascinating.
1: Thank you, Jane.
0: So you don't miss any of our shows. Make sure you subscribe to podcast.changewithin.com or click the subscribe button below. Until next time, this is your host, Dr. Jane Battenberg.